welcome to my first interview about mental health. Today, I am joined by my very good friend and hugely talented play therapist, early years educator and researcher, Anna McClure. Welcome, Anna. Hi, Nora. Um, Anna has her own private practice in central London where she works with children ages 3 to 11 years old. Can you tell our viewers a little bit more about what you do and what led you to become an early years educator and therapist? Well, um, I originally actually did a law degree, um, pushed by my school, who, which was predominantly academic focused. Um, although I did think I wanted to be a teacher actually at that point. Um, so I did the law degree and enjoyed the challenges, but I then was a bit lost after university. And while I was working in brand development, I came home one day crying my eyes out to my mum. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Mom, what am I going to do? I'm not happy. And she sat me down and she did a spider diagram with me. And she thought of all the things that I enjoyed doing. And it came out, you know, being around children was one of the main things. And mm -hmm. I always loved being around kids when I was younger, being a teen. And she was right. And I think I rebelled a bit against her because she was a teacher. So doing the law degree was a bit of rebelling. Because yeah. it was in my family. With Granny was a headmistress and mum was a teacher as well. But then I finally went down the Montessori education route in early years and taught at a German school in Dublin for three years. Where I became fascinated with play. And I just loved being around children. I felt alive. I knew that was where I was meant to be with early years children. Um, I then did a master's after that in early years education just to develop more theory around it and I published my um, dissertation on play because I became so fascinated about different curriculums internationally okay. and the way that Ireland was doing that and implementing things from the United Nations. Mm -hmm. So then after that I did my PGCE in early years and then I went on to teach reception and nursery mostly um, in Belfast and then in London. So I was in central London and out in Hertfordshire as well. So I always seemed to end up in reception for quite a long time. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that year group because it was quite pastoral. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I wanted to understand more how I could help children. Because I used to look around my classroom and go, this is, like, this is so amazing being surrounded by these little fascinating personalities. I, it really didn't feel like work to me. Yeah. And I wanted to know how to help them more emotionally, particularly the children that struggled. So I did a course called uh, Play Therapy um, to help children through creative ways process emotions. And I originally did it just as an add-on to teaching to be a better teacher. I thought, I'm never going to answer the therapist, no way. Um, and then I got quite into it and I realised I am, I seem to have a gift with helping kids open up. And I thought, okay, after lockdown, basically, you know, the techie sort of online teaching thing was not my thing. I'm not very techie. And I was meditating a lot and I felt called to just go and work with children on a deeper sort of level. Mm -hmm. And my course, you know, was finalised. I had got qualified. So it was all perfect timing. And here I am. And I haven't really looked back. Um, it's interesting that your mother used a spider graph. That's quite forward thinking. Creative of her. It's one of those things that sticks out in my mind because a lot of my friends, you know, they don't know what their purpose is. And for my mum to do that, it was amazing. I know. Amazing. Yeah, it really was. Shows how much I relied on my mummy to help me through life. <laughs> Can you tell us exactly what is play therapy? Well, play is the natural language of a child. 
because they can't verbalize everything that they're going through inside. So it is how they communicate. So through play and in a play therapy session, a child is able to express themselves and express things that might be repressed or hidden in the subconscious. So through creative ways, such as puppets, art, clay, and um, sand trays, a very good one as well, music, those sort of different elements, a child can connect with their subconscious, connect what's maybe going on in their body to kind of connect both the right and left brain mm -hmm. so that subconscious can be brought to the conscious and expressed. Interesting. And it's basically a way that children can emotionally process things that are going on in their life. And, you know, I deal with a lot of children who are going through divorces, bereavement, um, even being highly gifted intelligence-wise. I think that's something I deal with quite a lot. Interesting. And neurodiverse children, so maybe slightly on the spectrum mm -hmm. or a developmental delay. Okay. So accepting themselves in those years. Those so, years. okay. Um, it's just it suddenly just made me think of, well, perhaps there's play stuff for adults. Well, no, 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 I'm actually not joking. When you actually go back to it, creative therapy and sort of alternative therapies are actually becoming quite popular yeah. for adults. And you can do, like there was some people on my course that have gone on to work with adults. However, my niche is early years, but I do think it works. And I did some of my own therapy um, while I was training. Um, I did actually went off and got some sanitary therapy myself to go to get through grief. Yeah, and it was really beneficial to like observe my grief in a sanitary and see what was really going on with me. Yeah, I can see that being. Mm -hmm. I mean, a few of my friends have been doing this um, paint by numbers, mm -hmm. and I know they're finding that very therapeutic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. even when I'm playing. I'm doing a lot of playing with children. I mean, I come back and I don't feel drained because I'm fiddling with the sand and the, the clay and the play-doh and things. I think it's helping me too. Which five ninety percent of the brain really? is formed. Oh my goodness. So if you think about that, those early years are so important. Mm -hmm. And anything that happens, any sort of adverse childhood experiences that happen in those years and they're not processed properly, then that can affect people for the rest of their lives. And I know myself from my own therapeutic journey, and the deep journey I've been on, I've gone back to four or five with my therapy. So that affected me and the way I reacted in life. Yeah. So if we can get in during those early years to intervene with the child, mm -hmm. help the parent out with maybe mm -hmm. some subtle attachment things that they can, you know, tweak, then imagine and have healthier sort of relationships around the child, let the child feel seen, validated. It just will make such a difference to that child to have those tools then. Okay. So the key age for you is that reception year. Would you say that is sort of the key age? I mean, I think all the formative years, so from like zero, uh, my, my actual master's was in zero to eight. So those sort of are very, very important because if you get anything close to those sort of five, six, you know, the, the earlier you get a child, you know, the less years you have to go back. Sure. You know, the brain is more malleable between the ages of three and six. Makes sense. But if you can get, you know, a 10-year-old, you, know, you only have so many years to go yeah. back. If you get a 70-year-old starting therapy, you know, how many years you have to go back. Can you tell our viewers what you feel are the key takeaways from your many, many years of experience working with children? 
My key takeaways are the real importance of the reception year at school. I suppose because I have so much experience in that, I realised how integral it is to the developing child because there's so many new experiences. They're really first introduced to formal learning. They really start to make friendships and they've got the ability to start sort of making those friendships yeah. and socialising. And it's so big in their world. You don't understand how big that year is. You know, it's all about them. And for the parents. Exactly, the parents as well. It is a journey, and particularly parents with their oldest child, they need handheld, you know, because it is really, really hard, yeah. you know, to see your child. It's like their first sort of independence. Yeah. You know, it's, you have to help empower them, but you just want to wrap them up and call them. I have to do the countdown hug in the classroom. It's, I remember, I remember the adults, not just the children. <laughs> it, it was a re I remember so distinctly, like it was yesterday, walking up those stairs with my oldest, just feeling overcome with emotion because you know this is the beginning of the next sort of you know part of their lives that mm -hmm. is going to be until they're 18 years old most likely and it's a huge adjustment for the parents from being at home with the child and then going to nursery one or two hours a day um so yeah definitely I needed some hand holding <laughs> my favorite for basic neuroscience and an introduction to the right and left brain so the left brain is the thinking brain and the right brain is the creative brain. So when a child is dysregulated, Play-Doh or Sam really can help that child in that moment because they're not very logical. So that book is The Whole Brain Child by Daniel Siegel and Tina Bryson. That would be one that I would recommend for early years. And then the second book, which a parent actually recommended to me, and I've, I have recommended it to my sister and some of my friends and other parents, and they seem to all be loving it, is Hate Me Now, Thank Me Later, it's about setting loving limits with the child, by Dr. Robin Berman. Interesting title. Okay. <laughs> so moving on, let's talk about COVID and the impact that this has had on children and parents alike. Um, have you seen more parents come to you worried about children's mental health, um, worried about socialising, anxiety around that since the pandemic started? Well, I've only gone into this full time during the pandemic because I could see how much mental health was going to be needed. You know, mental mm -hmm. health support, and I thought I have these skills, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um, but I have seen a real surge in separation anxiety problems because children were at home with their parents more. So they've got so attached that, you know, there's a bit of a sensory overload theory going out into the world again. Um, and then social skills as well, play dates were on freeze for a while. So in those formative years when the social skills are building, you know, those children didn't have them. So then there's a bit more social anxiety and they haven't had as much practice, you know. And so play dates are very important yeah. now. And then I'm dealing with a lot of children who are year two and year one. And I think they missed out on very key years where boundaries in the classroom are very, very important to help empower them. Yeah. So I'm dealing with a lot of anxiety and it's only starting to lift when I kind of, you know, take them for a bit longer. And we work out maybe the trigger was actually then, if you think about it, mm. um, because we can trace it back to it exasperated their issues. Absolutely. I know from experience that the dates have become much more anxiety provoking mm -hmm. than they were prior. And a lot of other mothers have said the same to me, that their kids just don't want to do play dates anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's just... Well, if you think about yourself, I mean, I'm quite a social person. 
I love a good night in. Because you get you, you've got used yeah. to like your jammies and sitting in with Deliveroo. Deliveroo is my best friend. So yeah. if you literally think about that, if that's how we feel, that's how the children are feeling too. Very good. Can you tell me if there's something you've noticed, sort of a common trait among parents that you can say, okay, that is something that you're all doing wrong or, you know, that's why this has happened and sort of a common commonality between... I think a lot of parents doubt themselves and they feel not good enough and they constantly can be doing more, but actually they just need to be yeah. and they just need to go easy on themselves and don't feel guilty for having part of youth as well. Parents who are very busy in their careers those careers mean a lot to them and their children will look up to them in that. Just if you can find maybe 10 minutes, three times a week in your schedule book time with your child, sitting there, not doing the homework or something yeah. that they should do, something yeah. fun. You know, yeah. like, and I would really recommend something creative, like playing with Play-Doh, baking, you know, sand. I know these sort of things seem really simple, but I, I'm asking even 10-year-olds I work with to go back to that because some of them are frozen emotionally younger and they there's not enough sensory play experiences in the UK. Yeah, that makes so much sense. We believe that we repeat the mistakes of our parents. I can only relate to this being an auntie because I'm not a mother yet. Um, and I go home and even though I'm telling all these parents, don't say good boy, good girl. Yeah. You know, say good sitting, good eating. Um, I go home and my nephew will do something and I'll be like, good boy because I want my nephew to like me more than anyone in the world so I see myself making the own mis my the mistakes that yeah. my mom used to do and yeah. Ireland there's this validation thing I think throughout the whole culture and like feeling not good enough and all that stuff and um I can see how hard it would be that's me as an auntie so I love my nephew so much but as a mother it must be intensified I don't know how much so mm. I can see how difficult it is mm. to kind of release yourself from this like subconscious programming of your own childhood yeah i mean i would definitely agree with that because and i'm definitely trying to watch my language and mm -hmm. the you know a word can really change the meaning of what you're saying and that is something i'm trying to work on but it's very hard in the heat of the moment to think about how you're phrasing things oh my goodness completely but what like what do you think you take away from your own childhood and what would you keep Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so I would, without a doubt, and this sounds probably quite cheesy, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's honest, um, I would take away the love because I was filled with love. We had a house that just had a lot of love. Both my parents, very affectionate, giving, loving, constantly bigging us up, making us confident, believing we could do things. And that is something that is, you know, I want to give to my kids all the time. It's just that confidence and that feeling of love. Um, what would I not? Hopefully, mum and dad are watching. I, I think you know, there's a tendency to um, maybe push without even realizing your children in a certain direction because you think it's the right direction it's how we've been conditioned We're talking about cultural conditioning um and it's generational stuff yeah well. generational yeah. stuff and i'm trying not to do that with my kids i you know they are their own individuals they will choose their path um if they don't want to do the conventional path that's more than okay with me um 
and I guess trying to, to veer away from that. So that's a bit of a challenge, is it, do you find sometimes? Um, yes, because veering away from it takes guts mm -hmm. and vulnerability and it's more risky. Mm -hmm. But you can't stay in this sort of typical cookie cutter cultural life forever. You know, you, you have to, to, to stray a bit in order to progress and move on. So um, we're coming to the end of our interview. But before we end, Anna, is there anything you would like to ask me? I would like to ask you, um, well, I obviously taught both your children. So you're one of those people that actually helped me go on this journey because something you said to me, you made me realise that perhaps I am a little bit different to other teachers and perhaps I should work deeper with kids. Um, what was it that you felt you got from me as a reception teacher? So you really did open my eyes up to... Um, the, the mental health side, the, the, the healthy mental health side of very, very young children. And um, I wasn't as much in touch with it until you flagged up some things and you were so right too. And I just knew that you, you, you just went that extra mile to really understand what was going on in kids. And it's, it's incredibly special and therefore, I told you this and I think you really took it on board and here we are today. So it wasn't too blunt, was I? Because a lot of people accuse me of that. Sometimes very parents aren't ready. Some parents aren't ready for it. Yeah. Straight talking, <laughs> but that's sometimes what we need to hear. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh no, it's a pleasure. Thank you.